0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrible Land.
1: Today, how you don't always need an X-ray to check for a broken bone. New global guidelines on nutrition and aspartame, the commonly used artificial sweetener
0: another familiar drug that could hold promise for treatment-resistant depression. But first, it's been a big week in health news, Norman, and we'll start with last week on Tuesday, the Therapeutic Goods Administration made changes to the rules around medical termination of pregnancy.
1: Yes, um, this is called the MS two-step. So this is medical termination of pregnancy using two drugs: mifepristone, and uh, which is uh, an anti-progesterone drug which stops the placenta or the, the the fetus attaching to the placenta, and misoprostol, which is a prostaglandin which contracts the uterus. And the process is you take mifepristone. And then for thirty-six to forty-eight hours, you take um, misoprostol, and um, and this is in women who have uh, um, who have been pregnant for sixty-three days or less. And previously, it was only for GPs who were registered and trained and topped up their training every uh, on a regular basis. And similarly for pharmacists, now it's open to um, all GPs who are willing to prescribe the MS2-step, and indeed pharmacists who are willing to stock the medication.
0: Something that people in the women's health space have been advocating
1: for. Yes, and it just increases access. The, the problem is that uh, surgical uh, termination is not as widely available as it might be, particularly when you go into rural and regional areas. And also, they're sometimes sometimes not available because the local, even public hospital, may have maybe a Catholic hospital, and not willing to provide surgical uh, t- termination services. And there's also a cost issue here. So this is um, an effective way of of uh, terminating a pregnancy should you wish to do so, and um, and and safe.
0: And it's effective immediately. Uh, the the decision, I made?
1: You know, 1st of August is what I believe is the decision there. Um, And in terms of the complication rates, about 4% of women who do this, they have an incomplete termination and may need a surgical intervention to to complete the process. Well under 1% of women who do this have a continuing pregnancy and may need to repeat the process. And there is a risk of infection. So women do have to be careful when they do this and follow instructions. But overall, the risks are low and probably quite comparable to surgical termination.
0: And another piece of uh, news that came out also on Tuesday last week was the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare brought out a report that we all know that we're living for longer, but really it tries to answer the question of where's the limit for how long Australians can live?
1: It was the latest uh, information and analysis, and it really mixed up two two issues. One is life expectancy and lifespan. Lifespan is how long you and I can expect to live personally and what's the maximum duration on earth that we can expect versus life expectancy, which is an average of how long in the, the population lives um, in in general. And what they've shown is that life expectancy, and there's a problem with life expectancy, I'll come back to that in a moment, has gone up. It's gone up about 13 years um, uh, over the last 64 years, uh, since the 1960s, in men and it's gone up 11 living years in women. So it's gone up quite dramatically. But because it's an average, it hides uh, important data, such as how long is the oldest person? What, what what's the kind of what what age can you expect to live to in your situation? So, for example, if you take the life expectancy gap between First Nations people and Australian and non, non-Indigenous Australians, then that's 10 or 11 years, depending on how you calculate it in Australia mm-hmm. at the moment. But if you look, if you take away the average and look at the longest lived postcode in Australia and the shortest lived, which is um, APY lands in, um, in Central, Central Australia,
0: Australia.
1: Yeah. the gap is 45 years. Oh, 45 years so that's what happens when you actually dissect that but let's look at what you just talked about in the in the lead into this topic is if you look at people uh, i mean what's been quite dramatic is that people's th- there's been a cohort of people now living longer and longer before they die um so it's a funny thing to say but essentially one in 72 deaths uh, in you are in people aged 100 or more. In 1964, it was 1 in 1,200 deaths. I mean, that is a dramatic change in terms of how often people are living into their hundreds. Now, most of these deaths are between 100 and 104 years old. But what what hasn't shifted is the longest lived Australians, the maximum age at death. And that's round about 111 for men and 114 for women. So this is a debate that's been going on internationally: is life expectancy, is lifespan, going to continue getting older and older and older? Um, in other words, everything's going to go up, and the age at which the maximum age that we die is going to go up, or are we just getting older and older and older, but eventually we'll hit a brick wall? at 114, so the evidence from this is that maybe we'll hit a brick wall, is that there is a limit to lifespan at maybe round about 111, 114, um, and, but that we can expect, if you're well educated, um, you've got reasonable wealth, you're going to live into your 90s or your 100s, but fall off the perch when you reach the late 100s.
0: Wow. And it's all about quality of life into those later years as well
1: yeah but the evidence is that the causes of um, increased lifespan are also causes are also a cause of increased healthy lifespan so we are living longer with disability but that disability is fixable and not too um, and not too damaging so we're getting dementia later we're getting heart disease later we're getting cancer later it's true you're getting arthritis and so on quality of life is a- affected but not majorly so.
0: And following on from a piece of news that we've been following with detail this year, Norman, we've been talking a lot this year about psychedelic drugs being used to help treat severe mental health issues. From July 1, both MDMA and psilocybin have been approved for use under strict conditions. But there's another substance that also has promise as a treatment for severe depression and also is familiar to some people as a recreational drug, although it has been used as a medicine for a long time. I'm talking about ketamine. A study released last week showed it can help with treatment-resistant depression. Lead author Colleen Liu joins me now. Welcome, Colleen.
2: Hello. Good afternoon.
0: So treatment-resistant depression, it's an incredibly frustrating condition. How did ketamine perform in your study?
2: Look, ketamine performed extremely well. So in our study, unlike a lot of other studies testing new treatments for treatment-resistant depression, we didn't set any upper limit for how, how high the level of treatment resistance. So even people who'd had electroconvulsive therapy, uh, which has to date been the most effective treatment for treatment-resistant depression, even people who'd failed that uh, failed to respond to that was still included in our study. About a quarter of people in our study had, had already had ECT. And despite that, ketamine was shown to be very effective uh, compared to the placebo medication under double-blind conditions. How did it compare to ECT? So we didn't directly compare it to ECT. Other studies have done that. Uh, and interestingly, those seem to come out about level, which is very exciting because... It means that ketamine is the most effective treatment for depression we've had emerging in the last 80 years, which is when ECT was commenced, about 80 years ago.
0: So you found about one in five people on the ketamine managed to have a good result out of treatment-resistant depression, compared with a lot lower in the control group. How How do we actually interpret these numbers?
2: That's right. So there was a tenfold difference in terms of the number of people who became remitters. In other words, no longer had any significant depression, 20% in the ketamine group versus 2% in the placebo group. And while that might sound disappointing to some people, you need to remember that this is a very arbitrary research cutoff uh, of remission. So people who had you know ten out of sixty were in remission, people who had eleven out of sixty on their depression score were considered to be not in remission, but clinically would still still be indistinguishable. Uh, so it meant that the majority of people actually had useful clinical improvement.
0: Talk to me about the form of ketamine used in your study because it comes in a bunch of different forms. You've used an injectable form which uh, has the benefit of being quite cheap as well as uh, seeming to have this great effect.
2: That's right. So the significance of our study is that it's the world's largest study, which examined a what we call racemic ketamine, which is a generic form of ketamine that's been around for decades You know, in use, for example, as an anaesthetic. Uh, this can be purchased for about $5 per dose uh, by a hospital wholesale. In Australia and elsewhere in the world, we have two main forms of ketamine available, Uh, One is this generic form, which has been around for decades. We have a lot of data on its uh, safety as a medication. Uh, The other one is a patented version of ketamine, which is a spray into the nose called Spravato, and which has been developed as a treatment for depression. And that costs on average about $800 per treatment dose. There have been no studies directly comparing one against the other, but a lot of studies comparing each one against placebo And the mass of that evidence suggests that this generic form is at least as effective as the patented form uh, in treating depression.
0: I want to come back to the the generic form of ketamine and the issues that that's thrown up for you in a second. But first, can you talk me through the treatment regime because we have heard a lot about MDMA and psilocybin for PTSD and treatment resistant depression uh, and this last few months and it's all a very intensive psychotherapy uh, sessions in conjunction with the administration of the drug uh, versus previously antidepressants as something that someone maybe is taking by themselves where does the ketamine um, regime fit along this spectrum?
2: So it's very interesting because, you know, ketamine is also referred to as an atypical psychedelic and certainly people in our clinic who've had both psilocybin for depression, you know, for example, overseas and then come to our clinic and have ketamine, Uh, say it's a very similar experience, but just less intense with ketamine and you have repeated treatments with ketamine, you know, usually twice a week to start off with then we try and taper that to once a week or once a fortnight and get you off if we can It's very interesting because the psychedelics have emerged in the psychotherapy kind of domain, so very much as a facilitator of psychological therapy, whereas ketamine, although it's a very similar drug in some ways, uh, has emerged from the medical field really as a drug treatment in itself. But the two are actually coming together more closely. So increasingly, as we use ketamine in the clinic, uh, it makes a lot of sense to combine this with psychological therapy, lifestyle changes, et cetera. Uh, which actually helped to sort of consolidate someone's improvement from depression.
0: So it sounds like it's very promising, it's really cheap, it feels like uh, it's got a lot of promise behind it, but you're having some real trouble because the TGA, the way it's set up, it's really hard to get approval.
2: Uh, that's not really an, an issue. So uh, because it's an off-patent drug, there is no commercial sponsor behind ketamine So you you can't put up what is called a labeling uh, under the TGA. You can't get the TGA product information to say, you know this is a treatment for depression, because in order to do that, you need a commercial sponsor to put an application up. And there is no commercial sponsor because the drug is off-patent. But there's no reason why we can't use it uh, off-labels. Although the indication is written for anesthesia and sedation, ketamine is, for example, also used in pain management off-label. Uh, and here in depression, we're using it off-label. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Many generic drugs for which a second purpose is found years later are used off-label in this way. Uh, there's many examples in medicine, both in, in psychiatry and outside psychiatry. And the College of Psychiatrists uh, recommends both the patented version and also this generic version used off-label for the treatment of depression. That The main barrier to access is not actually the TGA, uh, it's more that apart from the drug itself, which in this case is very cheap, $5 per dose, there's also the treatment procedure cost. So ketamine, like the psychedelics, can cause some profound changes in thinking and perception. Uh, with ketamine, the kind of doses we're using, it's usually only lasts about half an hour to an hour. But it does mean you need to do it under careful medical supervision. And it can also cause changes in blood pressure, et cetera, all of which should be monitored and observed carefully. So it's actually a treatment procedure, not not a kind of a medication where you kind of get a script and then go off and take it by yourself at home. And that two hours of monitoring in a carefully set up clinic is where the cost comes in. That currently clinics charge about roughly $300 uh, per treatment session because of the careful monitoring. And at the moment, uh, you have to pay that out of pocket. It's Mm -hmm. not a funded treatment.
0: It's one we're going to have to continue to watch closely, but we do have to leave it there. Colleen, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Colleen Liu is a clinical psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at the University of New South Wales and the Black Dog Institute.
1: One of the most common fractures in children is when they fall on an outstretched arm, breaking the forearm bone, the radius, just above where it meets the wrist. The instant reaction of any parent is to head to the emergency department for an X-ray. But according to a randomised trial conducted in Queensland and published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, an ultrasound is just as good in most children. Dr Peter Snelling was the lead author. Peter is an emergency physician and paediatrician. Welcome to The Health Report.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So is this a new idea, doing ultrasound for fractures?
3: Look, there's been a number of studies uh, internationally, but um, what we did was different. We actually did the world's first randomised trial, and uh, we followed these children up for their functional outcomes, which is very different to um, what's been done previously.
1: So you were looking at them, what, about a month later to see whether their, their physical function on their arm was any different depending on what imaging technique you'd used?
3: Yeah, that's right. So... We randomised them to either having an ultrasound or an x-ray as their first um, imaging of uh, modality. And our primary outcome was at four weeks to see how that child had recovered their function. The the child doesn't really care whether there was a little crack or a little bump or what have you. What they care about is getting back to school and back to sport. And uh, so that's where we had the focus for our trial. And um, yeah, we found no difference in outcomes.
1: What's the advantage to an ultrasound?
3: Look, the ultrasound has now become part and parcel of what we use in the emergency department. We often term it as the visual stethoscope of the 21st century. Um, It gives us extra information that we wouldn't otherwise get just from um, examining a patient or listening to their chest. And uh, so this has now become part of what we do and it's readily available. And I just looked at fractures in children. We're seeing a number of kids every single day in the emergency department who are falling off equipment or... Falling, um, tripping over, and uh, injuring their uh, distal forearm, and so it's very, very common. And uh, ultrasound is just something we have. It doesn't have any radiation. Um, it's very quick and easy to perform, and uh, so hence uh, wanting to do this uh, randomised controlled trial.
1: And you were looking at kids with no deformity because sometimes with these collies fractures you can get a, a bump, but that implies that you've got to you've got to reduce the fracture. You've got to put it back to normal. But this is where. Uh, everything looks okay. Maybe a bit of swelling, but um, you don't know whether there's a fracture there or not.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we don't even need an X-ray to um, determine if there's a fracture. If a, col- if a child comes in with um, a deformed forearm, and uh, so we we did we excluded all those children from this trial, and it was just the children who visually had no deformity. Um, obviously, they could have a bit of swelling there, and uh, but um, children's bones um, are quite different to adults in that they're quite soft and porous. And so what's really quite interesting with children is that their bones will sort of bend and buckle. Um, but we do know that these um, particular fractures in kids are benign and they actually don't need any follow-up and they can be managed just like a sprain. And uh, So, so you, don't them,
1: you don't put them in a cast or a splint? No.
3: No. These What we call buckle fractures, uh, torus fractures, um, these little they essentially get a little bump um, when you're looking at them on either the x-ray or the ultrasound. And you can see it in quite exquisite detail uh, on the ultrasound because it really zooms up the image at that point of the, uh, of the bone. And, uh, and, and these children, there's already been a large trial that in the UK that demonstrated that these children, whether you give them a bandage, you give them a splint, you put them in a cast, they all do just as well as each other. Um, they're very stable injuries, and they don't need any further follow-up. So,
1: so does this mean that, that you, you could go to a general practice where somebody's used to using ultrasound and just take the other five-minute ultrasound there rather than waiting for four hours in an ED?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that um, we didn't, whilst we didn't have any general practitioners in this particular study, we had a range of practitioners who commonly assess children with fractures. We had nurse practitioners, we had a th- you know, physio, um, we had doctors, and Essentially, um, this could be applied anywhere. This could be a child who's injured themselves on the sporting field. This could be in the general practice. This could be in an urgent care clinic. Um,
1: yeah. There's one particular fracture which is very difficult to diagnose and it's called the scaphoid. It's a bone in the, the hand and it happens under similar circumstances. You fall on the outstretched arm but it, your thumb gets involved. It's, you can feel it. It's called the snuffbox When you lift up your thumb, there's a little dent in your, in your wrist. Is ultrasound better than X-ray? And it's very hard to see an X-ray. Is ultrasound better than X-ray for finding a scaphoid fracture? Because the scaphoid is very hard to heal if you miss it.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting point. We actually excluded children who had any um, stuff box tenderness um, for that very reason that we didn't want to um, miss any of those fractures. And so they were excluded from the trial. Um, so we still used our clinical um, acumen when we assessed the children, evaluated them. If they had an elbow injury, if they had other sort of um, injuries apart from the distal forearm, uh, those children were specifically excluded. Um, but um, we didn't find any children with scaphoid fractures in any of the follow-up.
1: And is it cheaper to do ultrasound? Did you save money?
3: What we found in the study is that any child that had either no fracture, so just a sprain or soft tissue injury, or the children that had the buckle fracture, our, our pre-specified hypothesis was that we wouldn't need to get an X-ray for these children because why would you? They don't need another image or any follow-up, um, of course, unless they uh, have any other issues that they run into. And so what we actually found is that we reduced the number of x-rays that children received in this in the ultrasound group uh, by two-thirds. So two-thirds of all the children um, did not need um, any any x-ray or any follow-up, and uh, we are able to demonstrate that in, in this trial.
1: Great result. Peter, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Dr. Peter Snelling is an emergency physician and paediatrician at the Gold Coast University Hospital in Queensland. Now, you might have seen headlines during the week about findings on the artificial sweetener aspartame came from a branch of the World Health Organization called the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC. Dr. Francesco Branca is the director of the Department of Nutrition for Health and Development at the WHO, and he's visiting Melbourne at the moment. And Francesco is also responsible for WHO's involvement in food safety. Welcome to The Health Report. Yes, good afternoon. Um, I'm going to get to, because you're also working on healthy nutrition guidelines globally, and we'll get to that in a moment, So, the aspartame findings, you seem to go quite lightly on it, re its potential cancer causation. So, we had two uh,
4: working groups that assessed uh, aspartame. The IR group assessed uh, aspartame as uh, as a potential hazard and it classified pretty low in the category of hazards, you know, as we uh, say, uh, possibly carcinogenic, uh, together with many other potential hazards, including, for example, using mobile phones. Uh, then we had another working group that was actually doing the whole risk assessment, so considering also the level of exposure we have to this uh, compound and, you know, we do. Uh, consume as part time in many foods or drinks. uh, And so that uh, um, exposure has been uh, going up. But um, both groups basically were trying to understand what are the practical implications and what we should uh, uh, tell people. But the the second working group decided not to change the um, the recommendation about what is acceptable to consume uh, every day. And that um, the amount is actually pretty high because it's uh, 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, so which corresponds to about, uh, you know, probably 14 cans of a soda containing aspartame.
1: So you're not suggesting we drink um, 14 cans, but what you're saying is that the safety level would start to get worrying beyond that.
4: Correct. And, and um, actually, high consumers uh, uh, maybe consume about 20 uh, milligrams, so about half of that. So so among high consumer, you have, you know, the equivalent of the seven, eight uh, cans. Uh, of course, there could be people who consume more. And that's why we in general, we are recommending to moderate consumption. So occasional consumption of aspartame is fine. Regular Uh, abundant consumption particularly among young children is something which we would discourage also because we have done another evaluation in parallel to this one and we've tried to see is there any benefit of of consuming as i was was going to ask
1: i was going to ask that because in fact in may you came out and said um it's not recommended for weight loss
4: that's correct. I mean, the, the reason why uh, um, sweeteners uh, have been used is to avoid consuming sugars. And of course, consuming sugars is related to um, increased weight gain. So WHO is, is saying you shouldn't consume more than 10% of your energy from sh- free sugars every day or better 5%. And, and therefore, um, you know, people have been saying, okay, let's use a sweetener. And industry has been using more and more sweeteners also because there's legislation that penalizes the content of uh, sugar in products, you know, whether through labeling or through taxation. Uh, so, but in reality, we have seen that the long-term use of sweeteners doesn't help uh, uh, and, and the weight gain is, is still there.
1: So is that a… compared to what? Compared to drinking sugary drinks or what? Uh,
4: it, well, uh, compared to drinking uh, water. So, uh, so…
1: And so uh, why, it, why should that be the case? <sighs>
4: Well, uh, the mechanism of action are not completely clear, but you know, apparently the um, uh, sweetener also has an effect on the, through the taste uh, receptor on uh, our insulin control. And, and so, uh, you know, there is a possibility that eventually still the uh, Let's stimulate the appetite. adaptation, yeah, exactly, the adaptation to the to the sweet taste uh, still leads us to to overeat. And uh, or overconsume energy rather, and and that is actually what we should try to avoid. So uh, we should adapt, uh, particularly since early ages, uh, uh, our our taste to a less sweet diet, and that would in general, uh, you know, benefit our our uh, energy balance.
1: Now these healthy nutrition guidelines from WHO, which have been delayed, and I understand they're delayed because the Food and Agriculture Organization hasn't really come on board yet. Um, is there a problem with industry and your new guidelines? So let
4: me let me clarify. So, WHO has been uh, developing a series of guidelines over the next uh, last ten years, and, and these are based on uh, a more uh, robust methodology, looking at systematic reviews of the science. And we started with the sugar guidelines and the sodium guidelines, and then more recently, in fact, today. We're releasing carbohydrates and fat guidelines, and then we're also updating the guidance on saturated fat and trans fat. So that is being published. And the reason why we had to delay the publication was actually that exactly you know, the discussion of aspartame part-time was, was taking so much oh, media see. attention that we delayed. delaying You just, said, what, you no, just what,
1: wanted free air. And so what have you said about carbohydrates? Because some people would go to war on this one, saying, oh, the world should be put on a low-carbohydrate diet because that's the answer for everything and diabetes no, and what have
4: actually, you. Well, actually we're saying that it depends very much on the quality of the carbohydrates. So carbohydrates actually should be the main source of... Uh, of energy and uh, we're saying that you should consume between 40 and 70% of the the energy from carbohydrate but of course if it's uh, simple carbohydrates it's a problem they have to be complex carbohydrates so they, you know, it's the carbohydrates that come from starch, from legumes, uh, from whole grain cereals Uh, and it's important to have uh, this carbohydrate because they they are the source of of fibre and we need to have we need to have at least 25 grams of fibre every day so so that is, uh, you know, putting the record straight in, in terms of where should be really the main source of our food, and, and you know, plant food, uh, fruit, vegetables. Uh, you know, they contain a lot of carbohydrates.
1: So it's not in general, but you know, it, it's the whole refined carbohydrates story. But don't abandon them altogether. Um, look, Frank Fresco, thank you very much for joining us on the Health Report.
4: Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you all.
1: Francesco Branca, Dr Francesco Branca, is Director of the Department for Nutrition and Health and Development at the World Health Organisation. And we'll have a link to that new report, which you've just discovered has been released today, on the Health Reports website. But that's it for this week.
0: It sure is, but we'll be back again next Monday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.